0: Good. It was a b- full day yesterday, wasn't it? Yes, yes. But now you're alert. so we're going to be set for the morning. We'll see what this evening holds, but uh, yes, yes. Um, our outline for this morning session, the uh, first session is on page 16 in your book, so you can turn there. You'll notice it's a, a little bit simpler outline this time. Uh, maybe indicates that we have hopes of actually finishing it in this session. Who knows? Uh, and I won't be skipping over huge, huge amounts. Or if I am, you won't know because it's not that not that detailed an outline. Um, you see, we come to uh, Acts five verses one through eleven, and we want to look at uh, Jesus as the jealous defender of his people's purity. Um, this is the um, one of the texts in the in the book of Acts that is a little alarming. Uh, There's so much that is thrilling and exciting as we see the Holy Spirit at work and gathering people into the church, uh, uniting people to Christ by faith, and uh, giving them new life so that they're part of this uh, new expression of the people of God. Uh, The people of God uh, are, in one sense, in continuity from the time of uh, our fall into sin. God is always calling his people through trusting, uh, through trust in Jesus Christ to belong to him. Uh, But now that we enter the age of fulfillment, it's an exciting time, but it's also a dangerous time. And the text before us reminds us that uh, it is not only a great comfort to have God close to us, uh, it's also a little risky, sometimes more than a little risky. We need to take account of the holiness uh, of Christ as He lives by His Holy Spirit in the midst of His people. Uh, Let me read our text. Actually, I'm going to begin to set the context uh, by reading from chapter 4, verse 32. Um, These opening verses uh, that I'm reading from the end of chapter 4 are one of those summaries of the life of the church uh, that Luke embeds between the the big events uh, that he narrates uh, to show us that the Holy Spirit is continuing to work day by day in the life of the church, Uh, And then uh, from that point we move to the gift of a man named Joseph whom the apostles renamed or nicknamed Barnabas. And that sets the context then for what we read in chapter 5. So we're going to be thinking about this whole text uh, together uh, from chapter 4.32 to 5.11. So hear God's word now. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Then the young men came in. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I actually need to go on to read the sequel. Let's continue, 12 through 16. People also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with the unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's ask God to write His Word on our heart this morning. Father, it is so easy for us as we gather with Your people each Lord's Day, even as we gather day by day, and hour by hour here on this mountain, to think of what we see of brothers and sisters whom we love and care for, sometimes with whom we have some differences at various points, Uh, to look at the surroundings around us, and to forget that as important as those things are, as as real as it is that you have put us in this world, uh, even more significant when your people gather is the reality that you are present by your Holy Spirit And that uh, you are a God who searches hearts. You are a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in loving kindness and covenant faithfulness. But you are also a God who are jealous for your people's loyalty and love. A God who expects us to be transparent before you, knowing that you see us through and through. And who demands that we drop our false fronts of righteousness and stand exposed before Your holiness and cast ourselves only on Your mercy to us in Jesus, resting only in His perfect righteousness and His atoning death for us. Father, teach us whenever we are gathered with Your people and even as we live before Your face day by day in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools, Teach us to remember that we always live and stand before the face of God. That that might give us sobriety, awe, and a a thirst for holiness, as well as joy and comfort and assurance in Your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the sweetest promises of the Bible is captured in one of the names given by the prophet Isaiah to Jesus. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. With us, God. With us, God. God with us. Matthew unpacks what that name means for us in Matthew 1 as he quotes that verse, he knows not all of us speak Hebrew so well, so he says it means God with us. Get it? God with us. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. But it's a two-edged promise, in a sense. It's a two-edged assurance. It certainly is a matter of great comfort, and it gives us great courage, because it was not only in the Incarnation that God made good His promise to be with His people, but it goes all the way back through the Old Testament. Think of Jacob on the run from his brother Esau. And he camps at a place called Luz and uh, pulls out the rock that would be his pillow for the night. And in the midst of the night, uh, he he has the vision of uh, that great tower stairway that reaches from earth to heaven and heaven to earth. And God standing at the top and the angels ascending and descending, serving God but also linking Jacob in his need to the Lord of the Covenant. And God says to him, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done for you what I have promised. And Jacob awakes and he realizes God was in this place and I did not know it. And he takes his stony pillow and he makes it a little pillar Of memorial, and he pours oil on it, and he renames Luz Beth El, House of God. God with me here, God making the promise, I will be with you. What great comfort that is. Moses, the people of Israel, Mount Sinai, Moses is receiving God's covenant treaty for Israel on the mountain, and meanwhile, the people are playing the harlot worshiping a golden calf as though it had brought them out of slavery. And God says, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses says, Lord, you can't do that. Your name is resting on the welfare of this people. And the Lord said, okay, I won't destroy them and build a new people out of you. And I will keep my promise to take them into the land, but I won't go with them. And Moses says, Lord, if you don't go with us, you might as well kill us here in the desert. If your present does not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Exodus 33, verses 15 and 16. We need you with us, Lord. You make us different. Moses leads the people through the wilderness, but not into the land. His successor Joshua does that. And on the brink of the conquest, God says to Joshua in Joshua 1.5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Emmanuel. Great comfort. Joshua, there's a big job ahead. It's way too big for you, but I will go with you. And I will fight the battles for my people to give them the land I promised to them. The prophets pick it up. We've looked a lot at Isaiah. A wonderful promise in Isaiah 43, verse 2. God says to His people, when you pass through the waters, think of flood waters, think of the danger of waters, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. The risen Lord Jesus appears to His eleven disciples after His resurrection. And He gives them a great commission to go to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that He has commanded them baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit. And he clinches it all with that wonderful promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Preacher to the Hebrews. To a congregation that has undergone leadership transition. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Remember your leaders. We've looked at this passage. Remember your leaders who brought the Word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in that context, He reminds them of the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. Sweet promise, God with us. But also dangerous. When God said to Moses, I'm not going with this people. And Moses said, you have to go with us. What will set us apart? You remember why God said He wouldn't go with His people? Exodus 33, verse 3. Because as the Lord said, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. I am a holy God, and I am dangerous to people who love God to coddle their sin. I will destroy you in the consuming purity of my holiness if I go up in your midst. And yet Moses says, we need you. We need to be near you. We need you near us. And yet at the same time, he's dangerous to us. Numbers 10. Moses' nephews, Nadab and Abihu. Priests who offer unauthorized, strange fire, not fire that has come from the tabernacle fires themselves. They come in presuming that they know as well as anybody how to worship God, not listening to His commands, and they are immediately destroyed by fire from the presence of God. And the Lord says, Among those who are near Me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Prophet Isaiah Called to be a prophet of God, by that great vision of the Lord, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple, and the glory filling the temple, and hearing the seraphim proclaiming the threefold holiness of God, the Lord of hosts. And what's Isaiah's response? "Yea, I get to be near God. No, Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Simon, the fisherman, his brother Andrew, offer their boat to the teacher from Galilee, and he teaches all day, and then he says now, let's put out into the deep water, put down your nets. Well, they fished in heaven. There's no, no fish in this part of the sea, Jesus. But they put down their nets... And suddenly their nets are filled to the breaking point with a catch of fish. And what is Simon's response? I can retire! No. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. He's terrified. He's terrified. C.S. Lewis got it right, you know, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the children, the Pevensy kids, arrive at the beaver's house and they begin to describe Aslan and suddenly in the conversation it comes out that Aslan is a lion and one of the girls asks, he's a lion, is he quite safe? And Mrs. Beaver chuckles at their naivete and she says, safe? Who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's the king. Anything but safe, but he's good. The Lord is to be loved. The Lord is to be delighted in. But also the Lord is to be feared. Now the fear of the Lord is not the fear of a a petulant, unpredictable tyrant, an Idi Amin who one day will embrace a close advisor and welcome him as a son and the next day order his execution. It's not that at all. But it's a holy awe and respect for the purity of God, and awful respect for a sovereign who is serious about his loyalty to his people and serious about our loyalty to him. That's what Ananias and Sapphira failed to understand to their destruction. Well, I read the prologue to Ananias and Sapphira, the end of chapter 4, The prelude is the joyful generosity of those who are grateful for grace. And Luke records for us here in this summary how eager believers were to part with some of their property and their resources for the sake of meeting the needs of others. Of course, he records other things. He really, in this summary at the end of chapter 4, he is kind of elaborating on the earlier summary in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, talks about the great power with which the apostles were giving witness, testimony to the resurrection. Talks about the unity of heart and soul that the gospel of God's grace had produced. All the differences, and there, is, there are great differences in the church even at this point, even though it's still in Jerusalem, still predominantly Jewish people, Maybe some Gentile proselytes, converts to Judaism added in here. But still, a huge spectrum of economic resources. For example, you have someone for ex- like Joseph Barnabas who has additional property that he can dispose of for the sake of meeting others' needs. And you have people who are in great need of daily distribution of food and so on. There's all that variety, and yet they're united in one heart and one soul. By... The testimony that the apostles are giving to Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. Great power. Jesus the risen Lord had promised power with the outpouring of His Holy Spirit as we've heard in chapter 1. And Jesus is keeping His Word. When the whole church had prayed for boldness, we touched on that I think in your devotions. We talked uh, in in the devotion time was focusing on the prayer that precedes this when the church... Praise for boldness, quotes Scripture back to the Lord, praying in words that the Lord had given to them in the Psalms and so on. The Lord answers with the shaking of the earth and filling them with the Holy Spirit to give them great boldness to speak. So there's great power in the testimony of the Gospel. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that great power communicates great grace. You see both of the great things there in verse 33. Great power, the apostles are giving their testimony, and great grace was upon them all. As the Father's favor had rested on Jesus while He was growing up, so now the Father's favor, undeserved favor on our part. Jesus deserved the Father's favor, but now grace, in spite of what we deserve, rests on those who trust in Jesus as well. And so they're glad to give. And as Luke says here, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Now this is another one of those places that it's interesting. Luke chooses a word that's not his usual word for people in economic distress. The word poor in Greek is one word, The word needy in Greek is another, just like in English. And our translators in the ESV did a good job here in using a a little different word from the the word they use elsewhere to talk about the poor. Because I'm convinced that at this point, Luke is quite intentionally echoing a passage from the Old Testament. Back in Deuteronomy, chapter 15 as the Lord is giving some instructions to His people, uh, including the instructions for the sabbatical years, the, the every seventh year time when there is to be a release of debts. He gives that command that if people have debts coming into the seventh year, that whoever is the creditor, whoever is owed the money, needs immediately to forgive the debt for a fellow Israelite, so that there won't be accumulated ongoing, deepening Uh, deficits and poverty in the part of God's people. And he promises, the Lord promises, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today, the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations you shall not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. And as he says before that, in verse 4, he says, there will be no needy person among you. Now, my ESV translates that poor, and that's a fine translation of the Hebrew. Luke is basically assuming that his friend Theophilus, to whom he's writing, is reading in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word needy that Luke uses in Acts chapter 4. No needy person. That promise now fulfilled not necessarily through ample harvest year after year after year from the lands of Israel, as was, in a sense, the original context in Deuteronomy 15, but now fulfilled in an even more wonderful way through hearts that are overflowing with thanksgiving to God and therefore ready to share with others. Now, that sharing of their possessions and their property, where they hold all things in common was not required for church membership. It wasn't required for them to come into the church in order to be, uh, in, for them to dispose of all their liquid assets or their material assets and give them all to the apostles uh, to administer. As we're going to see, Peter makes very clear that Ananias and Sapphira could do whatever they chose to do with their property before or after selling it. So the image that some of the Jesus people communes, the children of God and some of those other groups back in the 60s and the 70s had of the early churches pooling all their resources and becoming a fully communalistic, uh, almost communistic form of society is just not accurate. That's not what is going on here. But there is a spontaneous response to the grace of God that is eager to show itself in generosity to others. People are being set free from slavery to mammon by the gospel of God's grace. People are being set free to convey God's gracious provision toward brothers and sisters in need, whether near or far. And the great example of the liberating power of the gospel is Joseph, who's described for us here uh, in uh, verses 36 and 37. He is the great example of one who sold property, brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet so that it could meet others' needs. He will be called Barnabas every other time that we hear of him in this book, the name given to him by the apostles. He sold the field, brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet, as an example of what has taken place. Now, notice that he's described in particular ways. First, in terms of the name that the apostles gave him. Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Perhaps that word encouragement could also be rendered son of exhortation because he is an exhorter as well as an encourager. He shows a spirit of servanthood all the way through the book of Acts. He's the one who will go out on a limb when Saul of Tarsus returns from Damascus to Jerusalem claiming that he's now not a persecutor of Jesus and his people, but a follower and preacher of Jesus and his gospel. Barnabas is the one who takes the risk to get to know Saul personally well enough to affirm to the apostles this man has really been transformed by the grace of God. Barnabas is the one who, at least at the beginning of the missionary journey in Acts 13 when he and Paul set off or are sent out by the church in Antioch, takes the lead. But it seems quickly in that first trip, Barnabas willingly recedes behind Paul's leadership and lets Paul take the lead as a preacher recognizing the gifts and the calling that God had given to Paul. Barnabas is the one who when his nephew Mark wimps out on them in the first missionary journey, argues that they should take Mark along on a second trip. Paul isn't willing to do that. Barnabas is so convinced that the grace of God can transform Mark that uh, he and Paul have a falling out. Paul takes Silas and goes one direction. Barnabas takes Mark and goes another. Who was right at that moment? Luke doesn't tell us. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell us. In the long run, though, we see in Paul's letters that Paul commends Mark as a faithful servant of Christ. So whether Mark was restored immediately and when Barnabas took him out or whether it was through Barnabas' mentoring of Mark on that second journey that he and Mark took, we don't know, but the fruit was good fruit. This is the kind of man we're dealing with. Barnabas, at an earlier point, I jumped ahead too soon, was the one whom the apostles sent from Jerusalem when the word got got to Jerusalem, that Antioch in Syria, uh, that there were many believers there, and he was the one they sent there, a church that was largely Gentile in its background because perhaps not only of his background as one who had grown up in Cyprus, but one who cared for the flock. He's a Levite. Did you notice that? He's a Levite, meaning that he and his family had no hereditary property in the land of promise, how he came to possess this property, whether it was a field or whether it was some other property, the ESV translates it field, but it's a very generic term. The Levites were given certain cities in the land of promise, but Barnabas, of course, had grown up in Cyprus. He's a native, not of the promised land, but of that island out in the Mediterranean. So somehow or other, he had come to own property, but no doubt still remembered that his family and his tribe, the Levites, had been dependent upon the tithes of the Israelites for their daily supply of food and, and other things because they were not to be farmers in the land. And so perhaps as a Levite, he had a special empathy for those who were dependent upon others. Maybe this was part of why the way the Holy Spirit prepared him to be more than willing to give up this property so that those who were dependent upon The wealthy in the church could have their needs met. And then, as I mentioned, he's from Cyprus. That is, he's from the scattering, he's from the dispersion of Israel outside of the land. He would have been fluent in Greek. He would have been well acquainted with the Hellenistic culture. He would have been very familiar with uh, rubbing elbows with people from different ethnic groups and religious backgrounds. God's providence had prepared him to be the one who would minister to the multi-ethnic church in Antioch of Syria. Uh, so he was, And he was also prepared to take the lead as the gospel moved beyond Palestine as the Holy Spirit sent Barnabas and Saul out from Antioch. Wonderful man. By the grace of God. The fruit of God's grace evident in Barnabas. And the apostles recognized that and gave Joseph that special name, Barnabas, son of encouragement. Meanwhile, a man named Ananias also has a good name. Jehovah is gracious, but one's name doesn't always match one's reality. Two Ananiases in the book of Acts. We'll talk about the other one tonight in Damascus, a faithful follower of Jesus. But this Ananias of Jerusalem and his wife Sapphira were wannabes, They want to be, or at least they want to appear to be like Barnabas, right? I mean, step for step, action for action. Luke has said in the summary, those who had property, sold, brought, and placed at the apostles' feet. Barnabas sold his property, brought the proceeds, placed it at the apostles' feet. Ananias with his wife Sapphira... Sold his property, brought it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Oh, except you're saying I left out one crucial verb in chapter 5, verse 2. Okay, sold the property, kept back for himself some of the sales price, brought part of the proceeds, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And that's the crucial difference. The echo of Barnabas is, I believe, Luke's signal that Ananias wants to, be, to appear as generous as Barnabas. Now, I hope I'm not reading too much into this, and I don't want to overpsychologize. but uh, if Joseph brings this gift, and is at least in part for that reason and no doubt for others acknowledged by the apostles with a very special title. You are a son of encouragement and exhortation. Ananias apparently wants to appear in the same light and that's why you have the echo of the same actions. And yet, and yet, his heart is really not the heart that Barnabas has. His donations seem superficially to follow the pattern set by other wealthy believers and yet, He's more like Achan in the Old Testament than he is like Barnabas. Remember Achan? Joshua chapter 7. The conquest of Jericho. The Lord wins the great victory as Israel just walks around and around and around and around and around and around around, day after day. What a silly way to conquer a land, conquer a city. Uh, But finally... On the seventh day, as the trumpet sounds, God brings Jericho's walls down. God gives that first great fortress that protected the Canaanite kingdoms from the people of God. He brings it in rubble to the ground. And all is well. Jericho was so easy. The little neighboring town of Ai is going to be a pushover. No problem. Just send out a little group of troops and they'll conquer Ai in no time. But instead, they're routed. The Israelites are routed. What's wrong? And the Lord says, somebody stole my stuff. My plunder from Jericho. I, as the champion, had the right to lay claim to all the proceeds and the wealth of Jericho, and somebody kept some of it. Again, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the verb that is used in Joshua 7 for Achan taking the piece of clothing and the gold, the other things that he took, is the same, is it used only that one time in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's used here in the book of Acts to describe Ananias. And it is used once by Paul to tell slaves not to steal their master's stuff. But those are the only three times in the Greek Bible that that word is used. And these two are so striking. Joshua 7, and Acts 5, stealing, exposure of the theft, of the secret, supposedly theft, and then the execution of death. I think it's hard to argue that, there's, that that's just coincidence. This is God showing us that Ananias is much too much like Achan, that he is stealing the Lord's property. Now, why is he stealing? I mean, for Achan it was obvious God had said to the people, "Don't you touch the wealth in Jericho. It's not yours, it's mine. It will be devoted to destruction, because it is all to be a sacrifice to me in recognition that I have won the battle for you." That was obvious. But what about Ananias' property? Peter says to Ananias, verse four. While that property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, what is not, was it not at your disposal? You didn't have to sell the land, Ananias. And when you sold the land, you could have kept all of the purchase price. Or you could have kept part of it and given part of it. The problem was that you kept part of it and claimed to give all of it. problem was not just greed. The problem was deceptive greed. The problem was contempt for the heart-searching omniscience, the all-knowing purity of God. See, Ananias' sin and Sapphira's, since she had full knowledge of this, was not a refusal to give the whole price that he'd received for his property. It wasn't required that he sell the land at all. Peter confronted Ananias. He made clear that Ananias was free to sell the property or not, bring all the proceeds or part. The problem was that he brought part, claiming to give all. He, as Peter says, lied to the Holy Spirit. And in lying to the Holy Spirit, he tried to lie not to men, I'm sure he thought, well, if the apostles think I'm giving it all, they're going to give me a good name too, like Joseph's good name. But Peter says, you're not lying to us human beings. You might have been able to fool us, but remember Peter's an apostle receiving direct revelation from God at this point in the church's life. You've not lied to men, but to God. Now think about those two sentences. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. Think about what that says with respect to who the Holy Spirit is. Holy Spirit is not some vague, impersonal power. Only persons can be spoken to and lied to. He's personal, not impersonal. And not only is He personal, He's a divine person. You've lied to God. Next time the Watchtower folks come to your door, they're going to have all kinds of things to say about why Jesus is not Jehovah. Now you've already got some ammunition on that because Jesus is the one who commissions his witnesses. Those who are Jesus witnesses are Jehovah's witnesses and can testify that every knee bow before him. If they want to get off that subject and begin to talk about the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force, then you take them to Acts 5 and you say, "Well, can we lie to impersonal forces? Don't we lie to persons?" and try to deceive persons. Well, if they're honest, they'll have to say yes unless they know that you're laying a trap for them. This Holy Spirit is a person and He's the divine person, the third person of the Trinity, God Himself. So what's the issue? Again, it's not just greed. It's not just selfishness, but it's deception. As as The text goes on to say that they agreed, they conspired to test the Spirit of the Lord. The language there is from Exodus chapter 17, verse 7, uh, at the time at Massa and Meribah, when the Israelites thought that the Lord was going to fail them by letting them die of thirst in the wilderness. Here we're out here and there's no water anywhere. That place of testing where they tested the Lord and said, is the Lord among us or not? That's really the issue that Ananias and Sapphira were stumbling over. Is the Lord really among us? They didn't think so. They thought they could get away with the secret. Just like Achan thought if he hid the the plunder under his tent, nobody would ever know. God really wouldn't know. But the Lord knew. And to hide from God, to pretend that you're better than you really are in the presence of God is a very dangerous thing. Peter simply exposed their sin by the revelation that God had given to him. But the Lord Himself inflicted the judgment. Ananias first heard Peter's words indicting his sin of hiding and he fell down and gave up his last breath. same thing happened to Sapphira afterwards. She fell down and gave up her last breath. Ananias and Sapphira are people in the grip of fear, fear of losing, apparently, losing the security that the proceeds of that land could give to them, or at least a portion of them. They weren't really ready to give all for the sake of love for the Lord and His people, trusting that if they turned out to be a need that the Lord and his people would provide for them so they were fear of losing the security that money could buy and they were afraid of losing face they were afraid after Barnabas's generous gift they didn't want to bring only part of it and admit that it was only part of it so they were afraid of people what they were not afraid of was the Lord the one fear that they really needed to have they didn't have the fear of the spirit of God who searches hearts but we read that the result of the Lord's supernatural intervention, this sign of judgment, produced great fear. Twice over, in fact, in verses 5 and 11, after the death of Ananias, after the death of his wife, twice we read, great fear came upon all who heard of these events. Now today, Not every hypocrite who fellowships in Christ's church receives instantaneous, divinely inflicted capital punishment. Even in the apostolic period, there were people who lived and went on living even though they were pretending to be something they were not. Eventually it came out. John talks about those who claimed to be of us but finally left and departed from us because they really didn't belong to us, but as long as they were in the community of God's people, they seemed to be believers. They looked like they were following Jesus and trusting in Jesus. They made a believable profession of faith, but eventually it became clear that they were not trusting in Christ. So the Lord doesn't always do now, it didn't even always do when the apostles were living, what He did to Ananias and Sapphira kind of bringing forward into history the last judgment into this point in history, just as the Lord didn't heal every lame man or every sick person in the early church or in our churches today as He healed that lame man in the temple courts last night. But He gives us these previews. Previews of the final restoration in the healing of the lame man's weakened ankles so that he becomes a kind of a preview of the restoration of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. And here a preview of last judgment, when all the secrets of our hearts will be exposed. Not now necessarily, but eventually at the return of Christ. Still, playing false, pretending, putting up masks in the presence of the people of God, because we're in the presence of the Holy One of Israel, is a spiritually dangerous thing, whether you get caught not caught now or not. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but I want to just carry on through with the postlude. If we have the prelude in the summary at the end of chapter 4, we have a postlude here as well in verses 12 through 16. I want to point out to you this one striking thing here that the great fear that came not only upon the church, by the way, I haven't figured out why exactly, but in verse 11... Is the first time Luke refers to the body of believers as the church in the book of Acts, the assembly of God's people here. But not, not only on the church, but all who heard of these things. So the word got out far and wide uh, that it was dangerous to be part of this group if you really weren't committed to what they were committed to, to the gospel of God's grace. If you weren't ready for God to unmask you and show your desperate need of His mercy and His grace. And so you find on the one hand this striking statement in verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. People said this is a a dangerous group, but it's a group that is in some ways beautiful. It's a group that cares for one another. We will hear actually uh, later on this morning, about as the church continued to care for its needy, including the Greek-speaking widows, many priests become obedient to the faith. Chapter 6, verse 7. Priests who were to care for and administer Israel's gifts for the needy, for the outcast, for the widow, as well as for themselves, the Levites who were dependent on others. As they see in the church what Israel should always have been, this family of God caring for one another... They're they're in awe, but they also realize there's something very dangerous about this group. And yet, in the next verse here, chapter 5, verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. There's a magnetic attraction. The Holy Spirit is drawing people in. Even... Even though it's obvious that it's dangerous to be part of this group if you're not willing to be honest before God and His people, at the same time, there's such an attraction there that the Holy Spirit is drawing people in. Dropping our facades. Making us willing to depend on nothing but grace. That's the power of the Gospel to set us free. My wife and I love to read murder mysteries. You may have guessed that from that light in the tunnel illustration. And one of our favorite authors is Dorothy Sayers, a friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and Charles Williams and others. They wrote fantasy and other things. She wrote murder mysteries, Lord Peter Whimsey. Any Lord Peter Whimsey addicts out there? A few who will confess. Only two of us? Only three of us? Oh, okay, four, five, six, okay, good, good. We need to have a grand groundswell of that. Well, we'd read them all, you know, from start to finish, and we thought, oh no, they're all gone. Lord Peter Whimsey had married Lady Harriet Vane after getting her off from a false accusation of having killed her lover. Um, They had, you know, fallen in love, they'd gotten married, and that was the end. Bussman's honeymoon, it's all over. Ah, but only a few years ago, in the safe, of Dorothy Sayers' literary agent was found an incomplete manuscript of a Lord Peter Wimsey novel entitled, tentatively I guess, Thrones Dominations. Well, the executors of Lord Dorothy Sayers' estate contracted with Joe Peyton Walsh to finish the story, to fill in the blanks and finish it out. And as a result, it's a composite uh, it's a composite story, but I certainly maybe some of you who've read it could tell. I can't tell where the seams are I think Jill Payton Walsh did a great job the result is I don't know who wrote this Statement from Lord Peter toward the end of the book after they've solved the mystery uh, I Need to tell you Lady Harriet Vane is a woman who is not to be toyed with she's had a hard life and she does not suffer fools gladly, and Lord Peter sometimes comes across as a little bit of a superficial, flighty nobleman without any responsibility at all. That's not who he really is, but that's the way he comes across, and that's sometimes the way he can solve the cases because nobody takes him very seriously. But he is he's, he's like still waters that run deeper than you guess, I guess. But in any case, all that to say, at the end, Lord Peter looks to Lady Harriet and he says to her toward the end of the story, you have unmasked me but loved me all the same. You have unmasked me but loved me all the same. And I read that line and I thought, I know a woman who knows me too well and loves me all the same. number of husbands could say that to your wives, right? But then I thought, and I don't know about, I know Dorothy Sayers' faith it, it was evident in all of her essays and so on. I don't know where Joe Peyton Walsh is coming from, so I don't know. But I think at a deeper level, isn't that a wonderful thing that we can say that to our heavenly husband who has unmasked us and loved us all the same? Who's exposed our sin in the cross? I mean, you know, if there were ever a place that we could see in all of its ugliness what our sin deserves, it's in the cross of Christ as He hangs there in our place. And at the same time, at that same cross, there is this amazing display of the love of God. He loves us all the same. What a great comfort that is. I remember, you know, the teenagers aren't here now, but I remember one of the great terrors of high school being that people were going to discover what I was really like and then not like me anymore. All the hiding that you had to do, I still do that to a certain extent, but I'm more sophisticated about it now. I've only admitted to a few of you that I forgot to pack all my shirts on Monday, right? But now you all know. See, the Lord's working with me. Um, But... You never have to worry about that if you're trusting in Jesus. That that he's going to come across some deep, dark secret in your heart. And he's going to say, oh, I had no idea you were like that. If I'd known that, I never would have had anything to do with you. Because he knows it all. He's unmasked you. and loves you all the same. If only Ananias and Sapphira had known that. If only they'd realized we don't have to pretend to be as generous as Barnabas. We don't have to pretend to be as open-handed, to be as strong in faith. If only they'd just been transparent before God and His people and not lied. You may have seen the or heard the... Actually, it's, I think I hear it more on radio commercials. Maybe there's a TV, I don't know, but... We have a radio station, Country Western, that wakes us up in the morning. We used to have a classical station. It went defunct in North County. I guess that tells you something about the culture of North San Diego County. But now we wake up to KSON, Country Western, and almost every morning there's a a radio ad where the scene is a restaurant and the waitress comes over. It's it's obviously a classy restaurant. Uh, Hi, I'm Susan, and I'll be your server this evening. Our specials are filet mignon. And, uh, and lobster, and by the way, I abuse my children. I lock them for hours in a closet, and I yell at them, and sometimes I hit them. And then the other voiceover comes in and says, if only child abuse were that easy to spot. Um, wouldn't it be interesting if we came into church every Sunday and said, hi, my name is uh, you know, Pastor so-and-so, and these are my sins of the week. I'm not commending that necessarily. Um, Laughter Like an AA meeting. Hi, I'm Bill and I'm an alcoholic, you know. But at another level, we need to be honest before God. In the holy presence of the Holy Spirit, in the presence of a Lord who is jealous for our purity, the church needs to be a place where we can come and be honest not because our sin is excusable, because it's not, but because our sins have been forgiven in the blood of Christ. It's the Gospel that sets us free. It's the Gospel that exposes the secrets of our hearts and then calls us to rest in the righteousness of another. Is your confidence in God's grace mingled with the holy fear of His holiness have the twin truths that He searches hearts and that He forgives the guilty set you free to drop the masks by which you've tried to enhance your own image and to acknowledge that Jesus' righteousness and that alone is your confidence as you stand before the Lord, as you stand before one another in His presence. Let me lead us in prayer. Our God and our Father, We ask that You would write Your Word on our hearts. We ask, Father, that uh, You would give us a lively sense of Your holy presence among us as we gather with Your people, as we live before Your face day by day, even as we're scattered in the places that You call us to glorify You in the workplace. Make us people of integrity people through whom Jesus' grace and glory, purity and mercy shine toward others. And Father, we pray that as people see the fruit of grace in our lives, we can be humbled and honest about our own sin, but also joyful in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ that our lives will be as magnetic as this early church proved to be. That even though some did not dare to get close because they wanted to hide in the shadows, at the same time as you were calling your elect, many, many more were drawn in, trusting in Jesus, and added to this community of your people. We pray that for every one of these congregations represented here this week. In Jesus name, amen, let me mention when we have a minute or two before coffee break. amazingly, Johnson finished early um, to remind you again that you have.